History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 376 episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we have one of our haunted true crimes. I know, and it's one of my favorites. So obviously, this is not going to be an episode for the little ears, more than likely. Definitely not. We're going to be covering Fox Hollow Farm. This is a place that people who know Troy Taylor of American Hauntings, he takes people out there to do investigations occasionally. Yeah, that would be a really creepy location, I think. I don't know. I'd have I have some feelings about that. <laughs> I know, because if you think about it, everywhere that we ever go to investigate, clearly people have died there. Sometimes there has been like the Villisca Axe Murder House. You've had some murders there. But this one really does creep me out thinking about that. I think it's just because it's a serial killer and so many people were killed there. Right. It's pretty intense. Yeah. It just seems like it would have so much negative energy around it. Although the people that have lived there for years seem to have done it fairly peacefully. I mean, they're having experiences and stuff, but it's not like chasing them out of the house or anything. This is true. And it's a beautiful home and property. It does look beautiful. Yeah. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Dominique Fabrice, I hope I said that right, Natalie, Karen, Erica, Catherine, Josie, Sandy, Onyx, Adam C. and Adam F., Irene, Bethany, Sarah with an H, Susan, Ellen with an A, Terry with an I, Benjamin, Jan, Tabitha with two Bs, Matilda, Heather, Kyle, William, Anna, Maria, Carol, and Eric. Holy cow, that's almost 30 people. Good grief. Thanks for joining us in the crew on Facebook, you guys. And now, this moment naughty. The moment in oddity was suggested by Scott Booker. James Edwin Wide was a railway signalman in South Africa back in the 1880s. James had lost both of his legs in a work accident, so he had a real tough time of it. He caught an incredible break when he went to the market and saw a Chakma baboon driving an ox cart. James was so impressed that he bought the baboon, named him Jack, and trained the animal to push him to and from work in a small trolley. Soon he was training Jack to sweep floors and do other household duties. This is all really impressive, but Jack was able to do something even more amazing. When trains would approach the train station, they would toot their whistles to indicate which track they needed changed. James would pull on the levers to change the tracks. Jack watched James do this, and Jack figured out the pattern. Jack became so proficient that James didn't even have to supervise him anymore. One day, a train passenger saw that it was a baboon at the station controls, and they freaked out and complained to the authorities. The railway managers came to the train station thinking that they would be firing James until they saw the baboon working. They decided to test his abilities instead. 
Railway Superintendent George B. Howe said, Jack knows the signal whistles as well as I do, also every one of the levers. It was very touching to see his fondness for his master. As I drew near, they were both sitting on the trolley, the baboon's arms round his master's neck, stroking James's face. The railway insisted that Jack the baboon be paid, so he was given an employment number and received 20 cents a day and half a bottle of beer every week. Jack made no mistakes in the nine years he worked at the train station. His record ended when he developed tuberculosis and passed away. A baboon working the rails with a perfect record certainly is odd. And here's another unique podcast I'd love you to check out. Bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. I'm Darren Marlar, bringing you true stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, crime, conspiracy, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained seven days a week. Recently voted number two in the best horror true crime podcasts for 2020 by Podcast Magazine. Search for Weird Darkness wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, This Month in History. In the month of March, on the 2nd, in 537, the first siege of Rome started. Also in March, on the 12th in 538, that siege ended. This was a part of the Gothic War. Roman commander Belisarius was one of the most well-known and successful generals in Rome, and he led Roman forces against the siege of the Ostrogothic army under King Vitiges. The Goths had a force of nearly 30,000 men as compared to the initial Roman force of 5,000 that were later reinforced by another 5,600. King Vitiges had recently been elected as the new king, and he knew that his enraged people wanted action. They were tired of the attacks by the Romans, and now they took action. As they entered Rome via a bridge, the Roman forces there abandoned their positions, unbeknownst to Belisarius. He took his forces to the bridge and was surprised to see it occupied by the Goths, and he was hit hard. The Goths continued to have winds, but as disease and famine hit, not only the besieged Romans, but the Goths, they began to lose. Soon the Goths were surrounded by Roman detachments. The siege had now been going for 374 days, and the Goths decided to abandon Rome and burn their camps. Belisarius pursued them and waited until half the Gothic army had crossed the Melvian Bridge before attacking the remainder, and many Goths were drowned in the river or killed. The siege was finally over. We hear true crime stories like this all the time. A mild-mannered neighbor seems to be living a mundane life with his wife and kids until he turns out to be a serial killer. That described Herb Baumeister perfectly. He was an entrepreneur who founded the successful Save-A-Lot thrift stores. But beneath that successful veneer, he was also something quite sinister. He was suspected in the murders of at least 16 men and more than likely many more. His nickname became the I-70 Strangler. His home was Fox Hollow Farm, and this would become his burial ground for victims. The farm has been rumored to be haunted by the killer and his victims. Join us as we explore the crimes of Herb Baumeister and the hauntings left in their wake at Fox Hollow Farm.
puberty can be a real struggle, right, Kelly? Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) We suspect that nearly all of our listeners would not care to repeat that time in their lives. Hormones are raging as a young person is making the adjustment from child to young adult. For Herbert Richard Baumeister, puberty caused some kind of shift in his brain from which he would never recover. Baumeister was born in 1947 to Herbert and Elizabeth Baumeister, and he grew up in Westfield, Indiana. By all accounts, his early childhood seemed to be good, and he was joined by two brothers and a sister. As he entered his teens, he started to become obsessed with some really weird thoughts as his personality shifted. His behavior became antisocial, and he started telling obscene jokes and pulling weird pranks. Herb would wonder aloud what it would be like to taste urine, and he became fascinated by dead animals. Walking to school one morning, he found a dead crow in the road, and he picked it up and put it in his pocket. When he got to his classroom, he slipped the crow onto the teacher's desk when she wasn't looking. Another teacher got an even better present on their desk. Herb threw a fit once and urinated on that teacher's desk during class. You can imagine what his fellow classmates must have thought of him. Yeah, I don't <laughs> I, I don't even know. <laughs> I mean, there are some strange kids that I went to school with, but I don't know what I would have done if one of them was like, I wonder what urine tastes like. Can I try some of yours? Ew. God, I mean, (laughs) yeah, there's just something that's definitely cracked there. And I wanted to make the point that from all for all intents and purposes on the surface of his childhood, it looks like things were okay. It's not like he grew up in a really horrible home because, you know, a lot of people debate when it comes to these serial killers. Is it nurture? Is it nature? Right, exactly. One can imagine that his parents were frustrated by Herb's downward spiral of weird behavior and they took him to a doctor for psychological testing. The tests revealed that there was possibly a multi-personality issue and schizophrenic tendencies. Unfortunately, he was left untreated and he continued his descent into madness. His fascination with dead animals developed into squeezing the animals so he could feel their bones crushing from the power of his hands. The sensation aroused him. Despite being schizophrenic, Baumeister managed to function at a high level. He graduated from high school and got into Indiana University. It would be here that he would meet Juliana Sater, who went by Julie, and the two would start dating. Herb had not dated anyone before, but the couple got serious quickly. They shared conservative opinions and got along fairly well. Baumeister decided he was done with college after only one year, and he dropped out and began working for the Indianapolis Star as a copy boy. In 1971, Herb and Julie married. What Julie didn't know, and perhaps Herb wasn't quite aware either, was that he had homosexual tendencies. Yeah, so I don't know when he started to go down that route. I don't know if that was already happening in college. We don't know a whole lot about his life in that regard, but as we're going to find, there's definitely something there. Herb had other tendencies, too, in regards to his mental health, and Julie would soon find out about that. They'd been married for six months when Herb's father checked him into a psychiatric hospital, and he spent two months there. Herb was suffering from deep depression, and he would fly into unprovoked rages. He started working a variety of jobs and did well, but his co-workers thought he was very bizarre. I suppose he was very much like he was back in school, so... He lost a job working as a program director for the State Bureau of Motor Vehicles after he urinated on a letter addressed for the governor. He has a fascination with this urine thing. I was just going to say that. (laughs) After eight years of marriage, Julie and Herb decided to start a family. Their first daughter, Marie, was born in 1979 followed by their son, Eric, who was born in 1981, and then their final child, another daughter named Emily, was born in 1984. The following year, 1985, the body of a 17-year-old man named Eric Rodiger was found in Indiana. 
It is believed that this is one of Herb's first victims. So at some point previously, he had started picking up men. Herb started having problems with the law as well. He got arrested for a hit and run while he was intoxicated. Later, he was arrested for conspiracy to commit theft, and he managed to beat the charge. Baumeister set his sights on starting his own business in 1988. He had worked at a thrift store for a time, and he and Julie discussed opening one of their own. His father had recently died, and Herb went to his mother to ask for a $350,000 loan to open up a Save-A-Lot thrift store. The store was wildly successful, and Herb opened a second one in 1990. The body of 26-year-old Stephen Elliott was found shortly before this, and this would be another possible victim of Herb. Despite clearly having some major issues, Herb was a good father. He tried hard to make sure his kids grew up in a leave-it-to-beaver type home. That was the kind of childhood that he had had, so the family spent a lot of time together, almost cloistered. The Baumeisters had few friends, and we venture to think that was because Herb was odd in a bad way. The family had been successful with their three Save-A-Lot stores, but their fortunes began to turn. Balancing the three stores and raising three kids was taking its toll. Herb was spending long hours away from work, and no one knew what he was doing, but he would smell like alcohol when he returned. Herb burned out and asked Julie for a divorce in 1991. The couple reconciled, and even though their finances were not doing as well, they decided to buy their dream home. This would be Fox Hollow Farm in Westfield, Indiana, which was an 11,000-square-foot mansion built in the Tudor style with an indoor pool that sat on 18 acres and had originally been built by a doctor and his wife. There were nine bathrooms, four bedrooms, a library, two massive stone fireplaces, and an apartment. There was also a 4,000-square-foot garage and two horse stables. The couple was happy that their kids would have plenty of room to play and not be in danger of getting hit by a car. The irony was that they lived every day of their lives with a very dangerous man. Their father had started cruising the local gay bars and was calling himself Brian Smart. Gay men were disappearing from those bars. Ten would disappear in a little over two years. This started in May of 1993 with the disappearance of 22-year-old Michael Riley. That same month, 20-year-old Johnny L. Bayer was reported missing. 31-year-old Jeffrey Jones was reported missing in July. Richard Hamilton, who was 20, went missing that month as well. In August, 27-year-old Alan Livingstone disappeared. Stephen Hale, 26, was reported missing in April 1994. In June, 28-year-old Alan Broussard walked out of a gay bar and was never seen again. In July, 34-year-old Roger Allen Goodlett disappeared. Virgil Vandegrift was a private investigator who had worked for the Marion County Sheriff's Department. The first case to come to Vandegrift was Alan Broussard's. Alan's mother approached Vandegrift in early June of 1994. She described her son as a heavy drinker and gay. He was last seen leaving a gay bar called Brothers. The investigator wasn't alarmed at first, but did his due diligence, putting posters up around the area. As more missing gay men were reported, all of whom were described as having similar features, Vandegrift became more concerned. Mary Wilson was an investigator with the Indianapolis Police Department, and she was also working on cases involving missing gay men in Indianapolis. The two investigators had begun to suspect that all these cases were connected to each other. We're not sure how they learned of each other, but they began communicating and were soon working together on the case. What I love about what we see happening here is you've got Vandegrift. He's just a regular private investigator. So you've got a woman coming to him saying, my son's missing. So he's going with this missing case. But as he starts seeing more coming in, he starts to get concerned. And I love that because 
I mean, it's the 1990s. Gay people are not as much an accepted community. And I have a feeling that maybe police would start to look kind of the other way and not really be so worried about whatever that's going on over at the gay bars. Sure, not so much a high priority. Yeah, so this private investigator actually did care and started to put two and two together. And then kudos to this female investigator with the police department who is also putting two and two together. Somehow they found out about each other. I have a feeling he was calling the police department to get some information and stuff. And before long, these two were hooked up and talking to each other and going, we've got some other stuff going on here. And I'm sure that they started noticing that you've got all of these supposedly gay victims that are along I-70 that have been dumped. And now over in this area, we've got a lot of gay people dying at the gay bars and they're, they're starting to wonder if these are two things together. And obviously, later Clearly. on, they're going to figure out, OK, he's dumping his victims out on the ground when he doesn't have a house to bring them back to. But when he's got a house with all this property, now all of a sudden we don't have bodies getting dumped everywhere. In 1993, a gay man came to them with a horrific tale. He claimed that he had met a man named Brian Smart at a bar and that he had joined Smart at his mansion. Smart had led him into the area of the house that had an indoor pool. It was oddly decorated with mannequins around the pool. And I know you've seen some of the pictures, <laughs> Kelly. Yeah, it was pretty creepy. I mean, you got to wonder. I mean, obviously, we're going to talk about some other stuff that must have had Julie wondering what the hell. But I mean, the family <laughs> had to have used the pool. Right, right. Did you not wonder why you had these like mannequin? There's one dressed in a jersey, at the bar. It's and... just quirky. Yeah. He, he just has a quirky taste in decor. Babe, you and I are proud of our weird and odd. That's why I said he was odd in a bad way. Right, right. <laughs> because I like odd people. And there are people who are odd in a bad way. And that just, I can envision us having Skelly, our little I, I buddy just... that sits outside that we decorate. That's one thing. I was just going to but... say, well, we do have Skelly, our full-size <laughs> skeleton that sits on the bench in front of our house that we dress up for the holidays. So our neighbors probably think we're a little odd, but I, I don't know. I'm just, sure they do. Seems weird that you have all these mannequins around the pool. I don't know. Maybe one or two, but I don't know. When the man asked why Smart had the mannequins, he answered that he got lonely, so they kept him company. And now here's a message about the sponsor of this episode, Stereo. Kelly, this stereo app is just becoming more and more fun. It is giving us such a wonderful way to communicate with our listeners and meet new people who are coming around and listening to the podcast as well. Absolutely. I've been loving it. Stereo is a live social conversation. The listeners can become a part of the conversation by talking to us directly in the app. The stuff we're doing over there is exclusive stuff. And we gave you guys a little sampling over in the regular feed. We'd love to have you come over and join us live. We want to hear your thoughts about different things. We've talked about what is a ghost, shadow people, hauntings at various locations. It's a lot of fun. We do these on Thursdays and Saturdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. You can join us at Stereo.com forward slash History Ghost Bump. Download the app and then follow us. And you can follow Kelly there, too, under Kelly Rang. Please do, you guys. It's so much fun. We love hearing from you. We love hearing your, your comments and your questions. So it's just a big, fun social event, essentially. So join us there. Join us live. Stereo.com forward slash History Ghost Bump. Download the Stereo app and follow us. See you there. man continued his tale, sharing that he swam naked in the pool, and then Brian told him he had a neat trick to show him. He asked the guy to strangle him with a hose while he serviced himself. 
Then Smart put his hands on his victim's neck and began to choke him until he feigned passing out. Brian shook him until he opened his eyes. Smart said he was tired and he fell asleep. So the man scouted around the house trying to figure out who Brian really was because he suspected that he'd killed a friend of his that had gone missing. Perhaps it was an accident while practicing autoerotic asphyxiation. Unfortunately, this man only found women's clothing and children's toys and no name. Smart had told him that he was staying in an empty house working on landscaping for a new owner who would be moving in soon. Clearly, he had lied. The man tried to fish the wallet out of Smart's jeans, but Smart woke up. The man asked him to take him back to the bar, and Smart did, telling him that he was a lot of fun and he would see him later in the week. The man was unable to give the address for the mansion he'd been taken to, and he also had no other information. The detectives could do little more than take down his report, and they sent him on his way, asking that he contact them if he saw Smart again. And I didn't give this man a name. He does have a name that people have called him by. I think it's Tony or something, but that's not his real name either because they've been protecting his identity and such. But originally when he sees Brian in the bar, he sees him looking at the missing poster for his friend. And so he told the story as though he went with Brian to do a little of his own investigation. But I don't know. (laughs) I think think that's a cover story. (laughs) I I was thinking so, too, because I'm like, why did you go back to a house with some strange guy who you think might have killed a friend of yours? And actually, we're doing the autoerotic strangulation. Yeah, I mean, the minute somebody and I know people are into some weird stuff and that's fine. I don't really care what you do in your private time. But for me, I would be like if somebody's like, hey, can you take this hose and strangle me? And I'd be like, what? Yeah, I'd be like, nah, no. Yeah. Sorry. And I've, I've heard this story told two different ways that he used the hose on his victim here as well. And that it was also his hands. I think it was more likely that it was hands because I don't think this guy would have gone into the. Oh, yeah. OK, let's go ahead and you choke me out with the hose, too. Right. So I don't know. I don't know how much of it. He changed the story around a little bit so he didn't look like he was doing something strange. I'm not sure. But thankfully, he did come forward. It would take three years, but in 1995, the witness phoned the detectives and he told them that he had seen Smart and that he managed to record his license plate number. This was the break that they needed. They traced the license plate to Herb Baumeister and paid a visit to his house at Fox Hollow Farm. Baumeister was there and they informed him that he was a suspect in the disappearance of several men and they asked to search the house. Obviously, Baumeister was not willing to allow them to do that and there was not enough evidence to get a search warrant. The detectives decided to try working on Julie, and they approached her outside one of the Save-A-Lot stores. Despite being very unhappy in her marriage, Julie was also unwilling to allow the detectives to search the house, and even got angry that the detectives suggested that her husband was a suspect in the disappearance of gay men. She went home and asked Herb about it, and he dismissed the whole thing as rubbish, and she left it alone. But she had to be suspicious because in 25 years of marriage, Herb and Julie had only had sex six times. Clearly, there was three times because she got pregnant three times. Right. I mean, 25 years? (laughs) I can't imagine. Yeah, That's just... Clearly, there's something wrong. (laughs) The other thing that should have had Julie suspicious was something that happened in the fall of 1994. A year before the police came knocking, Eric, who was 13 at the time, had been playing in the woods when he stumbled across a human skull. He brought it back to the house and showed it to his mother, who was horrified. She asked Eric to lead her to where he found the skull, and he did just that. Julie was even more stunned when she sifted through the leaves and found a pile of bones. When Herb came home from work, she showed him the skull and told him about the other bones. Perhaps she hoped that he would explain them away as an old burial on the land that they didn't know about, but instead he told her a farcical story. His father had been an anesthesiologist, and so Herb said that it was a medical school skeleton that his father had owned. 
and Herb wasn't sure what to do with it, so he buried it in their backyard. Julie apparently bought the story because she didn't press him further. Oh my God. (laughs) I forgot about that portion of this story. It just doesn't even make any sense to me. I mean, if you came home and you're like, oh, that's just some real skeleton that I buried in the backyard. First of all, I'd be like, why did your dad have a real skeleton? I know medical schools way back in the day, we've talked about it, especially when it comes to H.H. Holmes. But I wouldn't think it'd be normal for an anesthesiologist to have a medical school skeleton. I think you could still actually buy things of that nature these days. I mean, they're very expensive. I I know that there's been situations that I've read about where people actually purchased Mm -hmm. skulls, actual real ones. So, I mean, I guess it's a thing if you have the money and you want to spend it that way. Yeah, I guess I would just be like, you know, why didn't you just donate it back to a medical school? then? (laughs) Right. Why would you bury it in the backyard and then not tell me about it? Yeah, our skelly is plastic. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Or is it? (laughs) Oh, geez. Five months later, the police tried again to get Julie to give them permission to search the property. And again, she said no. But she clearly had to be thinking about what they had told her. Her husband was a suspect in murders and bones had been found on the property by their son. Her marriage was rapidly deteriorating, and she had already suspected that he was stepping out on her. He had plenty of time for such things because for weeks and even months, every summer, she would take the kids to a property that Herb's mother owned on a lake. Herb would never join them, claiming that he was too busy with the stores. And now, his behavior was becoming even more erratic than it had been before, and Julie found some of it to be terrifying. Julie decided she couldn't take it anymore, and she filed for divorce. The detectives working the case had gotten their first break when their witness got the license plate of Herb's car. Now they were going to get their next break. In June of 1996, Julie invited the police to search the house and property. And what they found was horrific. The 18-acre estate had become a burial ground. Several officers started in an area that Julia led them to, and they began kicking up clots of dirt. After only a couple of kicks, a charred foot-long bone popped up out of the ground. Then the officers noticed that what they had at first thought were rocks and pebbles strewn about were actually bones. They found bits of bone and teeth everywhere. Clearly, the Baumeister kids had to have played all over the bones. They called in forensic anthropologist Stephen Naraki from the University of Indiana, and he told them that the bones were indeed human, that they were recent, and that they had been burned. The investigators dropped markers wherever they found bone, and soon it looked like a mass disaster scene. When police searched the house, they found a hidden camera in the pool area. Dozens of volunteers helped collect bones over a two-week period. The bones of 11 men were found, but only eight would eventually be identified. It was believed that Baumeister trolled the interstate in Indiana and picked up young gay men there from bars he frequented and brought them back to his house. He also is believed to have killed missing gay men in Ohio. Julie told the police that Herb would take business trips into Ohio, but she was never sure exactly of what these trips were about. Nine bodies were found in rural areas along Interstate 70 on the corridor between Indianapolis and Columbus. Julie estimated that he had made at least 100 business trips to Ohio. Authorities believe that Herb not only killed these nine other men, but that he could have killed up to 50 more. That makes Baumeister a very proficient serial killer. While this search was being conducted, Baumeister was with his son Eric at his mother's lake home. Julie got a custody order and police brought Eric back home. No one knows if Herb suspected that the police were on to him or if he figured this was just Julie being mean because of the divorce. But he disappeared from Lake Wawasi. 
Five days later, he phoned his brother Brad and told him that he was on a business trip and desperately needed some money. Brad was already aware of what had been found at his brother's house, so he sent the cash and then called the police. Herb had made his way to Fenville and then Port Huron, where he called his brother again, looking for more money. Brad told Herb that the cops wanted to talk to him. Herb hung up and drove into Canada. That was June 30th, and the police estimated that he spent several days driving along Lake Huron towards Grand Bend, Ontario. He slept in his car at night, and one evening a Canadian trooper knocked on the car window and asked why he was sleeping in his car. Baumeister claimed to be a tourist just resting his eyes. She surveyed the car and saw luggage and videotapes in the back seat. Perhaps these were tapes featuring the murders. We'll never know because it is believed that he threw the tapes into the lake before he killed himself. On the evening of July 3rd, Baumeister drove into Pinery Park, ate a peanut butter sandwich, piled up some sand into a human-sized mound, put some dead birds around it, and put a 357 Magnum revolver to his forehead and pulled the trigger. He left behind a suicide note that said he was going to go to sleep now because he had failed at business and his marriage was irreparable. He made no mention of any murders. And that really sucks. It was like a three-page rambling letter. So you think that he would have all kinds of information in there, at least to give himself a little bit of peace of mind before he did that, but not one mention. Julie and the children moved away from the house. Vicki and Robert Graves bought the mansion and land in 2006 for $987,000, even though the asking price had been $2.3 million, and the property was more than likely worth at least $5 million. There's always a reason why you get a bargain like that. <laughs> yes. Eight acres were purchased by Noah Heron, who opened the Urban Vines Winery and Brewery in 2017. Heron put three acres up for sale in 2019. We couldn't find anything on whether they had sold it or not. Also unknown is if Heron built a home on the acreage, which had been his plan. Vicki and Robert Gray still live in the house, and Robert wrote a book with Richard Estep in 2019 called The Horrors of Fox Hollow Farm, unraveling the history and hauntings of a serial killer's home, about the property and the murderer. The book details the many haunting experiences the Graves have had while living at Fox Hollow Farm. The Graves realized shortly after moving in that there was something strange going on at the property. They heard strange knocking inside the house, and they heard disembodied voices and footsteps. They saw full-bodied apparitions. On one occasion, Mrs. Graves was vacuuming gravel from around the pool, and her cord kept coming unplugged for no reason. After the third time, she finally gave up on vacuuming. One of the full-bodied apparitions seen by Mrs. Graves was that of a young man in their yard wearing a red t-shirt. That wasn't weird, but the fact that he had no legs was. As he walked away, he disappeared. That is the most well-known story about the property. And this spirit wearing the red shirt has been seen by several other people. Rob claims that Herb haunts his former home, although his presence has become infrequent. There are investigators who think that a malevolent energy is at the house and that it impersonates Herb, but that Herb's spirit is not at the house. Estep caught a stick figure on his SLS camera in the apartment. Yeah, so he did a lot of his own investigating while he was there. I haven't read the book, so I don't know all of the experiences that he has, but I know that he definitely caught something up in that apartment. And the main story that I have heard is this victim in the red t-shirt, and usually when people see him, he doesn't have any legs. So I don't know if it's because Herb disassembled him or what. I'm not sure exactly why. The apartment on the property had its own entrance and a kitchen, and Mr. Graves offered it to a co-worker named Joe LeBlanc when he was in need of a place to live. Joe reported having strange experiences from his first night there. His dog would react to things Joe couldn't see, and one night there was an insistent knocking at the door, and when he opened it, there was no one there. 
but the door knocker was up and then slammed down. So he watched it doing that. It's like he opens up the door, he looks over, and it's almost like the door knocker is like stuck. But then it kind of came down forcefully and knocked against the door again. Wow. He saw the doorknob moving as well. Joe also saw the stranger in the red t-shirt on the property. He decided to try recording some EVPs and asked questions to the air to see if he could get a response. He asked who was in the kitchen and he caught a response. An EVP could be heard repeating the phrase, the married one, over and over again. All of Baumeister's victims had been single, so it would seem that perhaps Baumeister had returned to his home and the scene of many of his crimes. Joe also claimed to be strangled by something he couldn't see when he was in the pool one day. And I will point out, when Joe moved into the house, the activity seemed to ramp up. And when I was watching some interviews with Joe, I don't know what all of the other victims looked like. But he's a rather attractive guy. I'd wondered if maybe he had similar looks to the other victims, and that's why we had activity ramping up. Could be. He also claimed to see a spirit in the apartment that was a young man that was running as though for his life. Knife marks on the wall have led him to believe someone was killed in his apartment. Although usually knifing someone was not Baumeister's means of disposal, so I'm not sure. A documentary titled The Haunting of Fox Hollow Farm came out in 2015. During their investigation, several psychics walked the house, and they used various pieces of equipment to collect evidence. EVP caught saying, go into my closet. Another EVP said, you are so effed up. Turn it off. And another couple, you know who I am, and you know why I'm here. The most chilling EVP said, you dare to come to my house? A couple of investigators saw a figure lurking in the woods when it was getting dark on the property. Could this be the elemental spirit that is said to haunt the woods there? Richard Eastup claims that he heard an animalistic guttural growl on the property, which could either be the malevolent spirit or the elemental spirit, or perhaps they are the same. The documentary not only covers Fox Hollow Farm, but the crew went out to the lake where Baumeister killed himself. One psychic felt that he had thrown the videotapes in the water, while another believed they were burned. Ghost Adventures investigated the property during season 11. Vicki Graves told Zach about the spirit in the red shirt, and she said that she felt like he was trying to show her something, but she wasn't sure what. Kind of like he made sure that she noticed him and then was walking away from her. Robert told the crew that he had seen a shadow figure move from the pump room to the pool room while he was cleaning the pool one day. During their investigation, they caught a male voice whispering help on an EVP. The spirit box said, I'm dead, I don't know, when asked who killed him, and Herb did it. Interesting stuff that they had caught, especially on the spirit box and the EVP with the help. They were just talking and weren't even trying to catch anything. It's one of those where you're just having a conversation and something pops up in the conversation. And it was a very, it's definitely a, a, sounded like a younger male voice saying help. So they'd wondered, is this one of the murder victims calling out? Yeah, very possibly. So that could have been some kind of residual energy trap there. I'm not sure. I just find it fascinating when they're talking about also this elemental spirit that could be in the woods. Did it Was it drawn there because there were all these murder victims on the grounds? Yeah, feeding on the energy, perhaps. Was it Baumeister giving off sacrifices to something? And here I'm putting it into the ground for you? Ew. Many people claim that the activity is not as bad as it used to be. Herb Baumeister was a prolific serial killer who got away with his crimes for many years and was never brought to justice. Let's hope that justice has come to him in the afterlife. Is he still here and haunting Fox Hollow Farm? Are his victims haunting the property? That is for you to decide. Well, I know that they just had an investigation there not too long ago. I'm sure another one will come up in the future, but I don't think that's one that we'll be jumping on board with. 
Yeah, probably not. Definitely not a place I've ever really wanted to check out in any way. But Vicky and Robert have lived there for many years and seem to be okay with it. And Rob even kind of feels, he didn't describe it as having a, a relationship with this former killer, like a necessarily positive thing, but he's just been very fascinated with him and finding out more about him. And he's put together a lot of the information that we have about what happened here, because clearly we didn't have trials. We didn't have a lot of evidence that came out. Uh, we just didn't get to have justice in this case. Right. And we still have three of those bodies that were never identified there, which I always hate to hear that. Yeah, you really can't put somebody at rest when you don't even know if it's them. And who knows how many other victims, because these are out in rural areas where these bodies were dumped that just have not been found. We want to encourage you guys to check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. Kelly, we put up a bonus episode into the main feed that's about shadow people that we did over on Stereo. And during that, we had somebody who called in and had asked about the Yuma Territorial Prison, if we'd ever been there, if we knew anything about it, because she was going to be going to do, I couldn't remember if it was a tour or an investigation. And one of the listeners listened to that. And so she wanted to share a little bit. She said, I was listening to your bonus episode on shadow people. So good. Anyway, I heard the caller ask about the Yuma Territorial Prison. And it so happens I've been there about three times. It is such a well done, well preserved walking history area, very creepy as well, even in broad daylight. There are so many different aspects to the site. First and foremost is the history behind it, which is well presented and told. There's the prison proper as well as Boot Hill, which is their cemetery. The watchtower, the hole, which if I remember correctly is really a cave. Can you imagine? No. <laughs> Very creepy and good to go in and poke around before rattlesnake season, if you get my drift. Although I guess you, pr you wouldn't have a problem with that, Kelly. I would not. And you know what? Honestly, unless it's extremely cold, rattlesnake season can be year round. I have found <laughs> rattlesnakes on Christmas Day, believe it or not, out hiking. I mean, intentionally looking for them, but yes. <laughs> I was blows my mind. You're like, <laughs> intentionally looking for them. I remember we had some friends when I was a kid that moved on to a property in Colorado that was up on a mountainside and there was a lot of land around it and it was brush and they had all kinds of problems with rattlesnakes up there. I was always like freaked out when my parents would take us up there. I never saw a ghost myself, even when we returned at night. Once you pay admission, you can stay on the grounds as long as you like, at least up to 2019, which was the last year I went. And then she also mentioned some other haunted locations in Yuma, which got me going, well, not only do we need to do this prison, but maybe just a haunted Yuma episode. And they apparently have ghost tours there. Episode? Heck, let's just go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us, Susan. We want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode isn't brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery, Lori Alexander. You're going to be buried under a marble tombstone. Sarah Midden. I hope I said that right. You're going to be buried in a chest tomb. And Stephanie Hedge. You're going to be put in a garden tomb, and in three months, you'll have an HGB logo mug coming to you. And for our other executive producers that are at the $10 and above level, you guys get a t-shirt every year. There's a lot of you. I communicate to you via whatever email you signed up at Patreon or PayPal with, and I have a lot of shirts I owe people. So please check your emails and get back to me. Even if you don't want it, please let me know that you're just not interested in getting a t-shirt so that I don't keep harping on you about it and that I get you guys taken care of. Absolutely. And thank you so much for supporting us at HGB. We truly do appreciate it. And we hope you love the bonus content that you get to enjoy. 
And this episode isn't brought to you by Stereo.com. And don't forget, guys, that we've got brand new content going live on Stereo Thursdays and Saturdays, 8 p.m. Eastern time. You can join us there. Stereo.com forward slash history goes bump. Download the app and follow us. Kelly, we had a great time on our last episode at Stereo. We were talking about what is a ghost. And we had a lot of people call in and tell us their thoughts about that. Yeah, it was really cool. I enjoy hearing everyone's opinions. And here's a little sampling of what you're missing if you haven't been there. Frontal, like face-to-face experience. That's the only shadow person I ever had any experience with, really. Hey, you two. I've seen a shadow. I've seen shadow people a few times, actually. Like, long story short, my, like, house growing up has, like, a female spirit in it, and she kind of takes multiple forms. Wow. I just finally found this conversation we're in. It's the only time um, a manifestation and a physical interaction happened. So remember, you can join us live Thursdays and Saturdays, 8 p.m. Eastern time, Stereo.com forward slash History Goes Bump. Download the app and follow us. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at HistoryGoesBump at gmail.com. King Vidigis, King Vidigis, <laughs> that's all folks. And many Goths were drowned in the river or killed or keeled. He was keeled. It will keel. <laughs> yeah. Let's go watch some Forged in Fire, babe. I know. <laughs> that's exactly where I got it from, I'm sure. He was an entrepreneur who founded the successful Save-A-Loft trif- Trift Stores. His home was Fox Follow Farm. Fox Follow Farm. Lots of F's in there. (laughs) Puberty can be a real struggle. Right, Kelly? Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) After eight years of marriage, Julian Herb decided to start... Herb? (laughs) Herb? Was it cilantro? Oregano? Basil? He he ain't the good kind of herb, that's for sure. (laughs) Oh, goodness. (laughs) It is believed that this is one of Herb... Herbs. I'm just going to keep calling him that. (laughs) Somebody wants to use some herbs and make a recipe, it sounds like. (laughs) And actually, we're doing the autoerotic asphyxia. I can't say the word. Autoerotic asphyxia. I had a hard time with it, too. (laughs) Asphyxia. It's not coming out. It closes my throat. It's a hard word to say. Asphyxiation. (laughs) Asphyxiation. This is like ritual. The autoerotic choking to death thing. Strangulation. (laughs) Just say autoerotic strangulation. The autoerotic strangulation. 